Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined, as usual, by Terry Fakes. And we have gotten off our schedule a little bit, so this episode's coming out on a Friday. But it's the first of three episodes that we're doing on a new topic, and that is the Christian Foundations of the West, I guess would be a great way to summarize that. You know, there's been a lot of work on this recently, and one of the reasons we wanted to do this was uh, that it's not just Christians talking about the Christian heritage of the West. That's been around a long time. Now you're starting to see more non-Christians talking about the Christian heritage of the West. And the books that we're going to base this on and talk about are going to give us various perspectives on that. And I think that'll be really uh, useful. I like what you said there, because the impetus for us is trying to look at a bit of a movement and a trend that's going on and say, what's interesting about this? What should we be right. learning about this? There's a whole spate of books in the last three or four years that are talking about this very theme, Christians, non-Christians. It's a, it's a conversation worth having. Mm -hmm. And it's starting to have some very interesting effects in society. So People that read the weekly speak I put out a few weeks ago, Ion Hersey Ali's Why I'm Now a Christian essay. Right. And in that essay, she talks about how the narrative that she was living by as an atheist. So she's good friends with some of the new atheists. She's a prominent atheist. She had converted from kind of radical Islam to atheism because that story made better sense. It was a more livable story of kind uh -huh. of the new atheism than what she lived before, because she saw the atrocities that were happening in some of these Muslim countries, especially towards women, and she thought that can't be true. So she jettisons religion altogether, and she lives by the narratives that we were talking about uh, in one of the previous series that we did. You can now live a fully, uh, you can have a full worldview that's divorced from God by believing in Darwinian evolution, and mm -hmm. Marxism and expressive individualism and take your pick. You can fill out a whole worldview with these things and you don't need God. Right. Well, what she experienced was in the, the modern kind of decline of the West and the revolutions that are going on against what we'd call quote unquote liberal values, free speech, the dignity of every individual, uh, that we shouldn't be judged by our innate characteristics, you know, race, sexuality, etc. She finds herself really wanting to defend these kind of classical liberal values right. and realizes that they don't have anything really powerful to stand on. And so the people that are making arguments against liberalism, against free speech, etc., she doesn't really have anything sub substantive to come back with right. to defend these things. And she starts to realize that Oh, we, what we have is we've got the ethics of Christianity without the worldview underpinnings of Christianity, without the metaphysics of Christianity. So she starts to dive into Christianity. And before mm -hmm. long, she becomes a Christian. And one of the reasons she becomes a Christian is uh, because it's true and because she understands her sin and all those things. But another reason she becomes a Christian is she believes it's the best account of the world that we live in. It, it, it best explains the world that we currently live in, the way things are, that there was a creator, that we are made in the image of God, 
that victimhood and uh, oppression really are stemming from the death of Christ. All these big themes, she realizes right. this is the world that we live in. This is the best explanation. So she becomes a Christian. And this is happening in a lot of different areas with a lot of different people. And this group of books that we're going to talk about, the three books we're going to talk about are Remaking the World by Andrew Wilson, Dominion by Tom Holland, and The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener. In different ways, these books all talk about this movement. You know, what, what are the moral and ethical and worldview foundations? What are the metaphysical foundations of the world that we live in, especially in the West? And even more particularly than, than that, why in the West have we seen things like human rights, dignity, equality, compassion, science, economics, societal progress? Why have all these things that we essentially take for granted cropped up in this one civilization in the history of the world, this kind of Western Judeo-Christian civilization? What is it about that stew that will create all these things that we now take for granted? And I think at root, what we want to say is these books will help us understand why that is. Maybe some right. of the things that we too take for granted about the world we live in. So we're going to start today with Andrew Wilson's book, which is called Remaking the World. And this is a fascinating book. It is a fantastic read. It is one of the more entertaining books that I've read in a long time. I think my first impression of it is hugely entertaining. It's the kind of book I love to read because it blends history with theology, with economics, right. with a million different things. It's a very eclectic. There's very few people that could write this book. Let's put it that way, because it's a very eclectic, very well-researched book. But the further you get into it, the more you realize there's some very, very substantive things that he's saying about how we got to where we got to today. And it's surprising to me uh, how much of it started in 1776. Exactly. That That is what makes this book distinctive amongst the others in this genre that we've read, is he's going to go back to a single time in history, the founding of America. And he's going to say that that is a pivotal time. He's, he's not going to say that America itself is responsible for everything that happened afterwards, but the events that happened in that century, at that time, the seven things that he's going to talk about came together to change uh, from there on. That was a turning point for the rest of the West. And I thought uh, it was a little uneven to me, Cole. I agree with you completely. It's not easy to take history, uh, theology, philosophy, and research it well and put it together into a narrative. There were a couple of his points that I thought were not compelling. However, Having said that, overall, I agree, it was a very entertaining read and intellectually stimulating. It's It'll basically broaden your mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So to get the big idea of the book, which this is helpful, on page seven of the book, he says the big idea of this book. If you're a book highlighter, underliner, bookmarker, this is where you really want to spend some ink. The mm -hmm. idea of this book, he says, is that 1776 more than any other year in the last millennium, is the year that made us who we are. We cannot understand ourselves without it. It was a year that witnessed seven transformations taking place. Globalism, the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Enrichment, the American Revolution, the rise of Christianity, I think actually the rise of post-Christianity, 
and right. the dawn of romanticism, which have remade the world and profoundly influenced the way we think about God, life, the universe, and everything. In short, 1776 provides us with an origin story for the post-Christian West. That's an ambitious thesis statement, but but uh, he 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 does in a lot of ways prove that in the book. And the, the first thing you notice in the book is how much stuff happened in 1776. I mean, we think the American Revolution. And because we're American, you look at this guy who's a British guy and we think, oh, great, here we go. We've got a Brit writing about, you know, how everything started to decline in 1776. Uh-huh. But it, it, the book is actually much more about life on the European continent and in Britain than it is in America, because that's where the major drivers of change were coming from. Still in 1776, the U.S. was culturally downstream from Europe and Britain. And so the things that happened there, whether it be in economics with Adam Smith, David Hume, Gibbons, decline and fall of the Roman Empire, Mm-hmm. inventions, you know, whatever you want to say that fall into these seven categories. Most of them happen there, but they affect America in the exact same way in the following decades. And so this fountainhead, this year 1776 is a fountainhead for things coming afterwards. And let me say one more thing about the thesis. This is a an origin story kind of book, as in if you want to understand the world we live in today, the kinds of narratives we live by, the stories that we tell ourselves, this book is designed to tell you where those narratives come from. So it's Correct. it's exactly what he says. It's an origin story of the West. It's it's kind of the makeup of our world today. And I think he tries to stay pretty value free. Um, this is this is this is uh, an account of how we got here without trying to make a ton of judgments throughout the first part of the book on whether or not that was a good thing or you right. know what we should say about these. It is trying to be kind of an objective stroll through the, the causal chain that got us to today. Well, unlike, uh, I think, the next book that we're going to read, his purpose is to uh, help the church thrive in this world. But as you said, his it's not a parochial point of view. He says for the first step in helping the church to thrive in this world is to understand where it came from and the forces that shaped where we are in an ex-Christian world. And I, I like that. I think that that's uh, helpful. He doesn't, like you said, make judgments as he goes along. Like, well, this happened and it's really bad and we should be worried about it. He's simply trying to describe where we are. And I think anything that tries to do that, he, he avoids the pitfall of oversimplifying. You know, he's got all these threads that are coming together, these seven threads that that are going to interact with each other. And I think to explain the complexity of the world today, there you have to have a somewhat complicated answer to that. In other words, there has to be more than one simple factor uh, because mm-hmm. some things are just so reductionist. And when you read that, you realize, okay, everything that's happening today could be boiled down to this one thing. And that's not usually the case. So I appreciate Wilson's approach by tracing some of these various threads through uh, the past couple of centuries to get us where we are today. Mm-hmm. So he starts the book with saying, well, let's just look at the oddity of the world that we live in compared to most of human history. You know, we take for granted that the world has kind of always been this way. That's actually not true. So the the opening chapter um, in terms of getting into this project is chapter two, which is called Quirks, the Weirder World. And in this book, he's building off of the work of Joseph Henrik, 
who is an anthropologist, I think he's a Harvard anthropologist, who wrote a book called The Weirdest People in the World. And weird is an acronym that he's using to describe these five facets of the modern world. But the problem is in that book, number one, that book is a drag, because I also read this that book, and it, it shows that it's written by an anthropologist. It's hard to get through. It's really long. It's uh -huh. very technical. Um, it's not that it isn't well written, but it is a work of scholarship. Mm -hmm. Whereas this book is a delight to read. It's much easier. It's narrative based. He, you know, he, instead of just talking about the geography of the world, he talks about uh, Captain Cook and the ships that he used and the explorations and all of that to make the point about geography affects where people are going to flourish in the world. Uh -huh. But the other thing is the Henrik book, The Weirdest People in the World, basically looks at Christianity as uh, a negative factor in the world that we live today. We had all these great classical values in Greece and Rome, and then Christianity comes along, and it makes the world weird. And uh, we the problems that we have in the world today are because of Christianity. So this is, mm -hmm. in some ways, in the vein of Edward Gibbon's book, which right. is actually published in the time period that we're looking at. Uh, I think the first volume of it actually was published in 1776. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. His thesis, this is way too general, but his thesis is the Roman world was gutted from the inside by Christians who didn't share the values of the empire. And because of their care for the oppressed and the lowest and their refusal to exercise power, they made the Roman Empire vulnerable and then it was conquered. So you had this wonderful thing that was kind of ruined from the inside out by these Christians. And I don't think that Gibbon himself was all that anti-Christian. He actually has some really interesting things to say about Christians. But that narrative has been taken in kind of a Victorian um, right. Whig history approach. And people have been running with it ever since. And mm -hmm. that's what Henrik does, is Christians have kind of rotted Western culture from the inside out. Wilson's actually going to take a very different view He's not as interested in talking about the Christian foundations of the West as Tom Holland is, who we'll do in our next episode in the book Dominion. But he adds the E and the R onto weird. And uh, this is the romanticism and ex-Christian or post-Christianity of this change that takes place. So he's actually going to say Christianity had an influence rising up through the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, all the way up into the Enlightenment that was good for the West. And the major change that happens in 1776 on the religious front is you have skepticism, secularism, and eventually rejection of Christianity in public spaces, atheism, pluralism, and that's where we find ourselves today. So he's he is uh, taking a more optimistic vision of history, but in the same way, he's going to admit, just like several of these other authors, we live in a very different world than most people in human history have lived in. And we take for granted things like individual identity, expression. Uh, we take for granted secular society, you know, that we don't live in a theocracy, that, you know, there's not one religion governing the public square. Um, individualism, we take for granted uh, the way our art expresses uh, the, the marketplace of values that we find. So he has a great bit on Hamilton. And what Hamilton says about our culture now, you know, Hamilton in some ways is the marquee piece of art for uh, the mindset that we have kind of in the 21st century American West. And um, 
there are going to be some things that pop out to you here because there are things that we think that everybody forever has thought, like that all humans have dignity before God. That's actually a pretty rare belief in history outside of this area. Right. Um, but when he gets to the end of this chapter, he's saying, okay, all this stuff is weird, weirder in his acronym, but let's talk about where it came from. And the rest of the book is looking at these seven tenets of the world and uh, how how they developed, how we got them. And so I just want to ask you, like, what, what were the chapters that stuck out to you or what were some of the ideas that stuck out to you as he starts to de describe the world that we live in today? You know, he one of the factors is, of course, the American Revolution, and probably been a lot said about that. But the founding of the United States and one uh, and some of the ideals that were uh, engrafted into the founding of the United States. So that part's pretty straightforward. The idea that God has given rights to us, the government is guaranteeing those rights. It's not granting them, it's guaranteeing them. Uh, the idea of human dignity, the idea of the depravity of humanity, and we need a balance of power. Uh, all those ideas are pretty pedestrian. One thing he did, Cole, that I, I had never really thought about and didn't know a lot about, but that the nature of the church in America in 1776 was itself part of what drove this country. For example, you have a wide range of churches in the original colonies. Some you have a mandated religion, a state-funded religion in some colonies. Other colonies, you have several different uh, Protestant religions going on. But the idea, the fundamental idea that he pointed out is that God is sovereign, and that the churches were autonomous, and that the churches would be making decisions together uh, that they were congregational in another in, a, in another way of thinking about it, and that that very idea that you could have an overarching federal government instituting the broad values, but that the states themselves were groups of people making their own decisions on carrying it out. That connection between religion in the founding of America and the government in America was one I'd never thought about before. Yeah, that was a fascinating point. Um that the model for federalism comes from the way that these Puritan churches were working right. in the colonies and in England leading up to the revolution. Um, in reading this book, uh, for a course that I was teaching, I was reading another book by George Marsden, who's one of the great American historians. And he has a book called Religion in American Culture. And he makes this point even more emphatically that the way the United States was set up with this skepticism, both towards uh, monarchy and mm -hmm. top-down centralized leadership and the depravity of each individual human being. So if you're in a tension between those two, you have the danger of centralized power, but you also don't completely trust blanket majority rule because you believe in the sinfulness of humanity. Right. That tension, that outlook on government that is very much at the heart of the checks and balances of the United States is 100% derived from Puritan church life. Right. Elders, congregationalism, you know, Presbyterianism, like the mix of all of that, you can almost say that starting with uh, the the Westminster divines and the confession of faith that was one of the threads that then will make its way into why we have two houses of Congress and three branches of government 
right. and this kind of checks and balances system that we have that nobody else in the world at that point had. A, a stat that he uh, talked about in that chapter that kind of blew my mind was in 1775, you had zero democracies, zero true democracies in the world. And now you'll have six countries in the world that don't claim to have something democratic about them. I mean, that right. is a sweeping, sweeping change that is just now 250 years old in the world. That's radical in the amount of time that the world has changed to come, to become democratic, whereas that was never really the case before. Even in ancient Rome, where, where we sometimes say that we drew our Senate and stuff from Rome and uh, democracy from Greece. Uh -huh. One, those were not quite the same as what we see in America, but certainly influenced it. And two, they didn't endure. Right. So uh, you have a long period of time where nobody's doing what they were doing in ancient Rome and ancient Greece. And all of a sudden now you have this democratic country set itself up and the rest of the world follows suit. I thought that was a really interesting point, too. Same here. I mean, one of the things that uh, is interesting is how pervasive that idea has been is even communist China and North Korea have democratic in their official name. And obviously they're not even close to being democratic, but there's something about the power of that idea that has made that a desirable thing. And uh, so I think the power of the idea is one, but the other is it's just, I had never really thought about just, and the fact that you do have religious pluralism among the 13 colonies, this might be the only place that could happen because in England, you didn't have that. You had mm -hmm. a very strong authorized church. Of course, the people that fled to America came from Europe. And the reason they did was because there wasn't freedom of religion or a pluralistic approach to religion. So when you got to America, there might be a colony that didn't have a pluralistic approach, but overall it was. And so I, that was the first time I really thought about, okay, why would this idea have birthed itself here? Mm. And that is a very interesting answer to that question. Well, it's one of the only times in history you have people setting up a government from scratch. Right. In, you know, if you, even if you wanted to make those changes in England, I mean, look at what they did in the 17th century. They behead their own king mm -hmm. and set up a different kind of government uh, with a protectorship with Oliver Cromwell. And it doesn't last. You know, the king's son comes back. They, they're a monarchy again. It right. doesn't last. But in America, what you get to do is you, you get to actually start from scratch. And you have this amazing providential situation where because of all that's in the water that he describes during this time, you get people like Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and John Adams who are going to create a, a government from scratch that actually embodies some of these values that are just peaking in the world at that time. You know, you right. really before that wouldn't ever have had anybody have the idea to set this government up with these values. But if you'd waited much later, you may not have had the people who had the ability with the new world and the exactly. freshness and the freedom to be able to actually set this government up. So, you know, the, the contrast between like the French Revolution, for example, right afterwards, mm -hmm. and the founding of the, of the United States of America is really interesting. They share certain core values. Right. But whereas the founders have a sympathy towards and, and many of them a personal belief in Christianity, in the French Revolution, you have an anti-religious government that's set right. up, and of course, it it falls, and you get Napoleon, you know, coming out of that. Whereas in the United States, you have a imperfect but new experimental government that's 
you know, still this grand experiment up to today. That's a great comparison. And uh, I think that's very astute and something we may overlook is both the French revolutionaries and the American revolutionaries were informed by social contract theory, certain elements of the Enlightenment. They were had all read and imbibed that political theory. Perhaps one of the key differences is the founders in America were informed by more biblical principles where France, exactly like you said, was moving exactly the opposite direction. They were rejecting religion, putting more atheistic uh, types of principles together. And just watching how that turned out, the French Revolution, of course, folded very quickly, historically speaking. And as as of this podcast, the uh, American experiment continues to go strong. <laughs> it is currently continuing. Uh, it is. A little, a little tentative with what's going on in Texas right now, <laughs> but it is currently continuing. You know, it, to the to the American founding, one of the other things in the book I thought was really interesting was in, I think this is in the chapter on skeptics, although it could definitely be in the chapter on enlightenment. He talks about, and this is this is one of the things I love about how he wrote the book. He uses a story to illustrate a really profound principle about this period. So he uses the story of Thomas Jefferson Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, who are working on the Declaration of Independence together. And Franklin kind of gives it to this young, smart, upstart Thomas Jefferson to write. And I think he writes it in two weeks or something like that, or 10 days or something. Well, Jefferson had originally put, we hold these truths to be sacred and undeniable, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain rights. Gives it to Ben Franklin. Ben Franklin crosses out sacred and undeniable and puts self-evident, which mm -hmm. ends up being the final draft of the declaration. So now we know we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and down by their creator with certain rights. That story is the shift of the Enlightenment. And in fact, right. I think it's maybe the most fundamental piece of worldview that, that is helpful in understanding today. So it, it's funny, though, because Jefferson is no Christian. You know, Jefferson's a deist. Right. So he's he's as much a product of the Enlightenment as Franklin is. But for whatever reason, you know, they they approach this wording a bit different. Whereas Jefferson's wording does rely on the fact that rights are given by God. And the reason we know about rights is because we we have the revealed truth that we are made in the image of God. What Franklin is doing is a very enlightenment thing to do, which is to say, well, you know, that might be true, but actually anybody could really tell that this is true. These are just self-evident things. These are things that every educated, thoughtful person could arrive at the truth that these, these truths of uh, we're created equal uh, is a universal value. And so that's what gets enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. Yes, that's a really good point, because notice what he doesn't say. He accepts the fact that there is a God, a creator, and we have these unalienable, unchangeable rights that come from God. But what, uh, what Franklin puts on the front is, oh, and by the way, this is self-evident. 
reason can get you to this. So if you mm-hmm. notice, even though there are biblical principles, Judeo-Christian principles in it, it's not rooted in the revelatory power of the Bible alone. Right. It also conjoins human reason with it. And you're right, Cole, that's a great blending of the Enlightenment with an acknowledgement of divin- the, the rights coming from a divine creator. I thought that was a, a fantastic way to make that point because what we're dealing mm-hmm. with in America today in a lot of ways, and Europe is maybe even further down the road than we are, is, and, and I think maybe this is the title of the last chapter of Glenn Scrivener's book, you have the kingdom without the king, right? So we yes. so we want the deliverances of what Christianity has given to the West. Again, these same topics we keep talking about, but you don't want what got you there which right. is the whole Christian worldview of God, the incarnation, Jesus dying, rising from the dead, reigning over all things. You don't want a Christian worldview, but you do want some of the deliverances of Christianity. And back to the way we started the episode, what happens when you do that is you get people like Ayan Hirsi Ali who are saying, I really want to fight for these things. I really want to fight for these kingdom, you know, I'm not using kingdom of God, but just this whole kingdom ideal. But I don't really have a leg to stand on. It only goes about an inch deep. Um, You know, so where, where do we get these things from? And so that shift from these things are sacred or later in the declaration, it says, you know, nature and nature's God. So not just reason alone, but reason plus revelation got you there. But right. now you say, I think we can take it from here with reason. That right. is a fundamental part of understanding the West today, is that we mm-hmm. really do want to live in a world where these things are taken for granted, but we're starting to realize without the underpinnings, they're not taken for granted. People actually really disagree about these things. There's no leg to stand on for thinking that these things just pop up and they're ingrained in the human understanding of ourselves and of our society. Uh, Part of the reason for that, I think one of the chapters I'm really glad that he uh, included was the chapter on romanticism. It's the the chapter Mm -hmm. titled Lovers. And in some ways, I think this book is a compliment. It's a, it's a historical compliment to what Carl Truman was doing in the rise and triumph of the modern self. Right. That book is maybe a more philosophical, psychological look at, at where we are in the world today. But the two together function really nicely because Truman is going through and saying, how did we get to this expressive individualist kind of self? You know, the question he starts the book with is, even 50 years ago, somebody would not have understood the sentence, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. They wouldn't even, I mean, you know what those words mean, but you wouldn't even have known what that person was trying to say. How mm-hmm. did we get to a place where that sentence makes sense? And he goes right. back to Rousseau and Nietzsche and Locke and everybody in between, and he's talking about, well, what are the psychological, philosophical foundations of the modern world? The thread that unites both of these books is this idea of romanticism, which there's a really mm-hmm. funny part in the beginning of this chapter where he talks about how difficult it is uh, to define romanticism. He says, nobody can actually agree on what romanticism is. Pinning it down is like nailing jelly to the wall. Um, Isaiah Berlin took 800 words to describe what romanticism was, just to give a definition. And so he says, it's clearly foolhardy to try and outline it in just eight. Nevertheless, for the sake of clarifying how I will be using the term, here it goes. And so he gives a pretty good brief 
um, explanation of rom what romanticism is. But basically, it's it's this turn inward. It's the mm -hmm. belief that actually the truest things about us come from the inside, the true self of who we are, and then expressing those to the world. And so he gives several great examples. Rousseau, for example, would be the poster child of this. In Confessions, he says, I'm made unlike anyone I have ever met. I will venture to say that I'm like no one in the whole world. I may be no better, but at least I am different. You mm -hmm. know, or Goethe, the great German writer and poet who says, you know, I go into myself to find the truth, and then I bring it back out as a gift for the world. That is is such an important factor in the world we live in today. The the only way you can get to a place where you have to construct your own identity, where you're, you know, right. it's possible to choose who you are and what you present to the world is because of this big romantic turn in history, in literature, in art. And I thought this was a fantastic chapter in explaining, you know, how did we get to a place where um, we can explain things like, social media, transgenderism, right. the expressive individualism that we have in the West, well, it's because of this turn uh, toward the inside, the internal, the truth about us as individuals that we then bring out and express to the world. Yes, and you know that the roots of that are bearing fruit today in that fundamentally romanticism and the enlightenment of scientific uh, exploration and reason are at odds. And in the beginning, the difference wasn't that big. But today, you will notice that the fruits of romanticism in the expressive individualism, uh, it, particularly as it manifests itself in transgenderism, that's probably the most obvious way, and science have diverged tremendously to the point where they're no longer even coexistent at all. And I think that's interesting. But in the founding of America, what you see is an interesting blend. What they took from Romanticism was the idea of individualism mm -hmm. and that each individual has a say, has a vote, is a part of what's going on. And so it takes some portion of Romanticism, but it doesn't take everything. And I do think Wilson does a good job of showing that uh, romanticism itself is part of this stew that's happening in America at that time. Yeah, the, the idea that to be happy, to be content, you must be your authentic self mm -hmm. would not have made sense to nearly right. anybody in history before this time. Right. Because the self was determined by the community. Self was determined by right. ritual. The self was determined by all kinds of factors that are beyond what you can come out with and create and talk about to other people. So I think that was a huge factor. The end of the book is interesting because he turns in part three, which is really just about the last maybe 60, 70 pages and talks about what Christians were doing during all of this. And he uses several interesting examples. He uses the example of um, John Wesley and Augustus Toplady and their disputes as a Calvinist and as an Arminian over uh, the religious scene in the world at that time. He uses John Newton to talk about his conviction, conversion, fight against the slave trade. He talks about abolition in the United States and the truth, you know, that everybody has access to the truth when we talk about the gospel. And then he turns and says, these people were looking at the world that they lived in then and looking for opportunities 
They were looking at opportunities for the gospel because they understood the world they lived in. And the takeaway is we too should be looking for those opportunities. If this is the way the world is, if these are the stories that the world is telling, then what are the opportunities for us as Christians to have the same kind of effect, to see doorways for the gospel, to be able to explain the world a little bit better than some of these narratives. So I, I think mm-hmm. Wilson is very much in agreement with Keller's vision of subversive fulfillment, which is right. it's easier to talk to somebody when you can say, here's what you believe and you're right. Now let me show you how you can find that rather than here's what you believe and you're wrong. Right. So looking at these narratives and saying, what is it about those that is true, but can only be found in Christ? You know, what is right. it about our world and these movements and this whole soup that, you know, has created the modern West? What is it there that's good and beautiful and truthful? And how can we then invite people to find the greatest version of that in what God has done through Jesus Christ? A great way to end this book, really an interesting way to to end the book. He doesn't give a ton of guidance there. I mean, it's kind of uh, for you to take away from the book and go and do yourself, but it's a fantastic idea given all that he's done to describe the world we live in to say, okay, given that if these are the stories that people are living by and telling themselves in the, the waters that we swim in, where are the opportunities for the gospel? Yeah, perhaps uh, one of the great quotes at the end of the book sums this up. He says, you know, nothing that he's doing is an attempt to prove that Christianity is true. I'm paraphrasing. He says, but when you look at this story, we should want it to be true. Mm. Yeah, that's good. That goes back to uh, something we talked about before in Keller's legacy, which is the major barriers to belief today are not just whether or not Christianity is rational, but whether or not it is moral. Is Christianity good? Right. And part of what we can do with reading a book like this, one of the tremendous resources, uh, one of the reasons it's such a tremendous resource is because it tells us what the world kind of wants and doesn't want. It gives us a little right. readout on the desires and the passions and the affections in the world that we live in. And then we can essentially say, oh, you really value that. You really want that to be true. Well, let mm-hmm. me tell you how this is true. You know, right. you, you, Get the desire there, and then show the truth. And uh, this book is a is a great resource for being able to do that, for being able to look at our culture, see it for what it is, and find common ground to talk about the gospel, to talk about what what is actually true in the world and what God has done. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.